Just from talking to folks and having seen this scenario before, you realize that all the people enslaved by that person are going to be part of the estate and they could be sold off and scattered. Another possibility is that the slaveholder is uh, having a hard time financially and may even have threatened, as sometimes happened, to, as they said in those days, I'm going to put you in my pocket, meaning I'm going to summon the slave trader and sell you off for $500, $600, $700 and, you know, cash you in. I'm Scott Shane, and my book is called Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. It weaves the story of three characters in the 1840s. These are real people. It's a nonfiction book. They were involved in the Underground Railroad and the domestic slave trade in the mid-Atlantic around Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and the surrounding counties. The featured character is a virtually unknown black abolitionist named Thomas Smallwood, Mm -hmm. who not only helped hundreds of people escape slavery, but also wrote about it in a series of satirical letters that were published at the time about the people escaping, the people they were escaping from, that really is a sort of unique satirical masterpiece that I was fortunate enough to stumble upon. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Scott Shane is discussing his book, Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Scott Shane was a longtime New York Times reporter and two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Why did you focus on the the Mid-Atlantic states? Uh, For example, you live now in Maryland, in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's basically the answer right there. The, The origins of this book actually goes back about 25 years to my discovery after living in Baltimore for quite a few years that in the first half of the 19th century, the slave trade, slave traders, had thrived, uh, operated thriving businesses around Baltimore's Inner Harbor. And for those who've visited, the Inner Harbor is a lovely, touristy kind of place uh, where people stroll and eat. And, you know, just the, the horror when I began to read about it of the so-called slave jails or slave pens operated by domestic slave traders at the time from about 1810 to the Civil War. You know, it was just very striking to me. And I wrote about it for the Baltimore Sun, where I was working at the time, and always wanted to return to it in part because so few Americans grasp the nature of the domestic slave trade and the scale of the domestic slave trade. Baltimore happened to be one of the big ports where people were forced onto ships or chained into so-called coffles, lines of people chained together and marched south or taken south by ship and sold into the cotton and sugar plantations of the Deep South. I lived there. This was sort of all around me, and it really um, caught my imagination. I I finally did return to it, you know, started looking for a story to tell. Now, Thomas uh, Smallwood, your uh, lead character, He's uh, telling the enslaved people to flee north, but as you say, there was this opposite pressure. They could be sort of kidnapped and taken south. Yeah, one of the things that 
that I sort of that dawned on me that that I discovered in writing this book is that everybody knows about the Underground Railroad. Everybody knows about people escaping slavery. What I came to realize that certainly in in the Mid Atlantic, the decision to run, which was a very fraught, very risky thing to do to run from your enslaver often was motivated by the fear of being sold south. So what would happen is, for example, your slaveholder might be on his deathbed and you, you know, just from talking to folks and having seen this scenario before, you realize that all the people enslaved by that person are going to be part of the estate and they could be sold off and scattered. Another possibility is that the slaveholder is uh, having a hard time financially and may even have threatened, as sometimes happened, to, as they said in those days, I'm going to put you in my pocket, meaning I'm going to summon the slave trader and sell you off for $500, $600, and, uh, you know, cash you in. The horror of being sold south was that you were usually, often, separated from most of your family or all of your family, wives separated from husbands, children from parents, siblings separated. And in those days, the likelihood was you would never see them again. So you're being shipped off a thousand miles and sent into, often in the cotton and sugar trade, a sort of factory farm where you might not even survive uh, terribly long, particularly the sugar plantations had very short lifespans. Uh, it was brutal work. And so when people feared they might be sold south or got wind of the possibility that they might be imminently sold south, that often prompted them to run north. And a further complication, a further sort of paradox, was that if you did run and you were caught, which was not uncommon because slaveholders often, almost always, offered rewards for the return of runaway slaves. And so there were police, police officers, bounty hunters of all kinds who were looking to collect those rewards. So if you were caught and returned to your slaveholder, it was very common for the slaveholders to say, well, I can't trust this person to stay here and work for me, so I'm going to sell them to the slave trader. So the consequence of your fearing being sold south and taking off to try to escape ends up being that you are sold south. Hmm. So the two institutions or the two phenomena, the domestic slave trade and the Underground Railroad, turn out to be very uh, entangled one with another. Now, how did Thomas Smallwood, who's an African-American, get involved in the Underground Railroad? He, he was not a, a slave. Well, he, wa he was born into slavery uh, just outside Washington, D.C., in Bladensburg, Maryland. And he happened to have an enslaver, a minister named John Ferguson, who clearly was hostile to slavery, but because of complicated legal reasons, could not free Thomas and his sister outright, uh, because they had been inherited by his wife, 
who had children from a former marriage. So anyway, he agreed when Thomas was 15 to free him at age 30, but that was conditioned on Thomas paying him back the $500 that Ferguson essentially paid his wife and her former children and the children of the former marriage. So Thomas worked for from age 15 to age 30 to buy his own freedom. By 30, he was a free man. Well, he had a he job. Did. He worked or had a small yeah, business, he, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, he had, uh, he'd worked during the time that he was paying off the bill for his freedom, so to speak. He had learned to read and then gotten quite a, a sort of self-education because he worked as a servant in the home of an educator, a guy who ran a series of schools and who had grown children who also apparently took an interest in Thomas and, and helped him learn literature and other things. And then Thomas Smallwood started a shoemaking business and married, had some kids. And so in uh, by the early 1840s, by the beginning of the 1840s, He's around 40 years old, and he's got a um, successful shoemaking business. He's got four kids and a fifth on the way. He you know, has had for, for a while enough sort of leisure time and uh, interest to take, you know, to take a strong interest in the, in the larger issue of slavery, and he is determined essentially to do something about it in a practical way. Or what he did was to uh, organize trips, if you will, on the Underground Railroad. That's right. Of course, it wasn't called that at the time, and th- and that's part of the story. But what happened was a, uh, a younger man named Charles Torrey, a white man, a white New Englander who was a passionate abolitionist, came down to Washington, D.C., where Smallwood was running his shoemaking business, Mm-hmm. And Tory was uh, his plan was to become a correspondent for abolitionist newspapers in the North, covering Congress and sending dispatches back. But he was really more of an activist than a journalist, and he was was really interested in in sort of direct action at that point against slavery, as was Smallwood. And it happened that Smallwood's wife did the laundry for the boarding house where Charles Torrey settled, and the two men got together and made a plan and started organizing escapes. And I guess two of the things that that distinguished their operation, of course, people had been escaping from slavery, you know, everywhere that slavery had existed in human history. These guys didn't always wait, especially early on, until somebody expressed the desire to escape, they would actually solicit, they would approach folks and say, would you like to, would you like to run to freedom in the North? And uh, so they're very active in that way, proactive. And also they tried to do it whenever they could by the wagon load. They'd get 10, 15, sometimes even, uh, I think I've, I've seen numbers as large as 18, people, some of which would be children, um, packed into a wagon, uh, which would be covered, and they would uh, rent, borrow, or buy uh, a wagon and pack everybody in and take off in the middle of the night. Uh, So they were trying to 
do it essentially on a mass scale. And this attracted some attention, as one can imagine. Uh, Washington, D.C., where they were, uh, most of their escapes were from Washington, Baltimore, and the environs. Uh, Washington at that time, where they're both living, was a, a very small place, about 30,000 people. And, you know, when 15 enslaved people escaped from multiple households in a single night, you can imagine that that stirred up a whole lot of interest. And, uh, you know, and one way of grasping the scale of this is, you know, the value of these people on the market at the time might be anywhere from a few hundred uh, for a, a child up to maybe a thousand for the most desirable uh, working adult. So, you know, if we're talking about, say, 500 a piece on average, if you put 15 people in there, it, you know, it, it can be as much as, you know, when you do the math and you convert it to today's dollars, you can be talking about, uh, you know, 50000 75000 $100,000 disappearing overnight. It's almost, you can, you know, I kind of mm -hmm. thought of it as almost like a bank heist. <laughs> and so uh, this, it was quite a phenomenon. It drew a lot of attention and the folks who were losing their workers and the, the slave catchers whose job was to, uh, you know, find runaways and return them were all rather baffled by uh, what was going on. You argue that Smallwood came up with the name Underground Railroad? Yeah, that's sort of a fun story. So the way Smallwood told it, in these, uh, this series of letters that he wrote under a pseudonym to an abolitionist paper in Albany, New York, which was on their uh, route north. What happened was there was a, a somewhat notorious constable, police constable, in Baltimore by the name of John Zell, who, like almost all the cops at that time in that area, was earning a very large portion of his income from those rewards that slaveholders would pay for the return of their runaway property. And supposedly, according to the way Smallwood tells it, John Zell was overheard, this council was overheard by folks expressing exasperation at the scale of the escapes taking place and at, and at his own inability to figure out how people were getting away in such numbers. So he said... They must be getting away by underground railroad or steam balloon. This was sort of like there were no underground railroads. There were railroads, which were a relatively new technology. There were no underground railroads. And steam balloon was sort of a, an experimental technology. So essentially he was saying what we might say, you know, they must have been abducted by aliens. In other words, I have no idea how these people are getting away. But Smallwood heard about this and was very taken, first of all, it was obviously a compliment uh, of, of a sort to the uh, escapes he was, uh, he was, you know, organizing. And he loved the idea that there was this underground railroad that was spiriting people away. And it was really, you know, he saw it as essentially a, a big joke and a way to mock the slaveholders and slave catchers. 
So in these letters to the Albany paper, he started talking about this and riffing on it, and he would often advise the slaveholders, whose real names he always used, you know, advise a slaveholder if, if you're upset that your, your five enslaved people, you know, took off and you don't know what happened to them, he would advise them to go to the office of the Underground Railroad in Washington and ask after them. Of course, there was no such office. He appoints himself at one point the general agent of all the branches of the, underground, of the National Underground Railroad. And so this become, this is sort of his private joke, which he makes public in these letters. Other newspapers begin picking it up, and uh, pretty soon, within a couple of years, uh, Underground Railroad has become a, a term of art and a sort of a generic way of, dis- of talking about escapes from slavery. You know, what's interesting is that this, the origin of the phrase Underground Railroad has never been traced to, you know, sort of run to ground. There were a couple of sort of folklore accounts that supposedly, uh, you know, had led to the, this phrase. But the great thing today is that you have these massive uh, collections of 19th century newspapers so you can put the phrase Underground Railroad into these collections. You have to do it multiple ways because sometimes it was written Underground Railroad, four words. Mm. They do the different combinations. Anyway, all of the early uses of this phrase come from Smallwood's letters. And eventually, his sidekick, Charles Torrey, becomes editor of that abolitionist paper in Albany, and he picks up this phrase, too, and, and begins using it. And that's, uh, it turns out, where it came from. We're from the Albany area. Can you tell us any more about that newspaper? Sure. It was initially called Toxin of Liberty, T-O-C-S-I-N. Toxin is an old word for bell. Mm-hmm. So essentially it was Liberty Bell, but it was Toxin of Liberty. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it set out to be a... Uh, a commercial general newspaper, but with a very strong abolitionist slant. It was an outlet for the Liberty Party, which was a political party that had been started by abolitionists, including Charles Tory, who broke with William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison didn't really like to use the political system to combat slavery because he thought the political system was too corrupted by slavery, whereas Tory and, and other opponents of Garrison thought the political system may be imperfect, but it's the way we're going to get something done. They started this uh, political party called the Liberty Party, which never got huge support in elections, but it had uh, a lot of allied newspapers, and this was one of them. It later merged with another paper and changed the name to the Albany Weekly Patriot. It's fun to read these old papers, they have uh, ads for all kinds of, you know, you know um, strange remedies for what mm-hmm. ails you. And, uh, and they, they did some coverage of, of Congress and the president, Washington. But some these letters from Thomas Smallwood quickly became one of the most popular features in the paper. And he wrote them under a pseudonym he took from Charles Dickens, from Dickens' Pickwick Papers because uh, everything he was doing was highly illegal, and, of course, it was extremely dangerous to help people escape from slavery. And so he 
he was writing about all this with the real names of the enslavers, real names of the enslaved. He signed it with a pseudonym to stay out of the clutches of the law. You identify one slave trader, I think probably in Baltimore, named uh, that uh, Smallwood and Tory opposed, uh, a man named Hope Slatter. Yeah, so Hope Slatter is the third character in this book, and he's the bad guy. Uh, and he was the dominant slave trader in the region in the Mid-Atlantic for from about the late 1830s to the late 1840s, for about a decade. And he operated a slave jail, as it was called, a private slave jail, that was a couple blocks from Baltimore's Inner Harbor. And like the other slave traders, he would send agents out across the Maryland into the eastern shore, into southern Maryland, other places where there were a lot of uh, people in slavery and he would, his agents would offer to buy uh, their excess laborers, the people they didn't want or need, and they would cart them, shackle them, cart them to Baltimore, and they would live in this brick slave jail with quarters for men and quarters for women, quite uh, rudimentary, uh, until they had a shipload, and Slatter would put... 50, 100 people onto a ship, usually with other cargo as well. He was just using the services of the of the shipper. And uh, the ship would carry them down around Florida, up the Mississippi, into New Orleans. And Hope Slatter's brother, Shadrach Slatter, operated the southern hub of the business. And believe it or not, they called it their showroom, where the, the people they had shipped south would be put on display and uh, you know, prospective buyers would come look them over and buy them, in most cases, uh, for the booming cotton plantations and also for the sugar plantations in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, in the Deep South. So these folks were you know, being taken a long way from anything and anyone they'd ever known. Uh, and families that were not separated at the initial sale up in the Mid-Atlantic would often be separated down in Louisiana and New Orleans when somebody would say, well, I want to buy a woman and buy a wife away from a husband. The husband might be sent to a, a different location hundreds of miles away. You know, there are multiple steps along the way where families were separated in the eventually black families after the civil war for several decades would put ads in the paper saying i'm looking for my sister i'm looking for mm -hmm. my daughter with a description and you know w when they had disappeared when they had been sold south uh, to try to reunite the family we're talking with scott shane author of flee north what happened to uh, Thomas Smallwood and Charles Torrey. So Smallwood and the Torrey were involved in an extremely dangerous business, and it may have been inevitable that they would at some point be found out. And sure enough, first the police got on to Smallwood in Washington, D.C., and he had to run for his life in quite a dramatic series of close encounters. Uh, the police were on his tail, 
he was uh, running across a snowy, wintry landscape in uh, Pennsylvania. You know, didn't really know where he was, but he makes it all the way to Toronto, Canada, where he has already sent his family because he saw the end approaching. And he ended up living another 40 years in Toronto. He'd always advised uh, the folks he was helping escape slavery to keep going and cross into Canada, which was part of the British Empire where slavery had been abolished, because he did not think they would be safe even in upstate New York. Charles Tory, after, after Smallwood's escape to Canada, Tory came south again and started organizing escapes on his own, but he was eventually identified, arrested, sent to the Maryland Penitentiary, and he had chronic tuberculosis, which was made um, much worse by the conditions in the prison, and he died in prison. Uh, a couple of years after his arrest in 1846. Tory maybe is remembered better than Smallwood. Is that so? Yeah, one of the uh, perhaps not surprising uh, aspects of this story is that Thomas Smallwood has gotten almost no attention from historians. Charles Tory has gotten some. Uh, there's a good biography of Charles Tory. But generally speaking, Smallwood is mentioned as sort of a black helper or sidekick to Charles Tory. When you really get into the details of this story, it turns out that Charles Tory, who was a dozen years younger, was really the sidekick and helper to Thomas Smallwood, who was more or less the brains of the operation. But Tory got a, uh, you know, when he died, he was seen as a martyr of abolition and, and abolition movement. And he's got a, a lovely uh, memorial monument carved out of stone in a, a beautiful cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was from Mass. And, and you know, Hope Slatter, the bad guy, who eventually retired with his fortune from Baltimore to Mobile, Alabama, he has a giant tomb in really? Magnolia Cemetery in, in Mobile, a beautiful big block of, of marble surrounded by a gold-painted fence. And Thomas Smallwood is buried in a cemetery in Toronto. And if there was ever a grave marker, it sunk long ago into under the soil and the grass there. So you know where he's buried in a general sense, which section of the cemetery. But there's, no, uh, there's nothing left to indicate that this man ever lived. Scott Shane is author of Flee North. He's been our guest on the Historian's Podcast. And now, Bob, it's time for the History Mystery. Been doing this for the last, what, couple of months now. Working out pretty well, as a matter of fact. We learned something new. History Mystery, here we go again. What year? All, all questions start with what? Not necessarily, but what mm. year was the Emancipation Proclamation issued during the American Civil War? Give you three choices. Was it 1861, 1863, or 1865? Please donate to help support the Historian's Podcast. Give online by linking to our GoFundMe page by pressing the blue button on our website, bobcudmore.com. Or write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and mail it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, one two three zero two. The Emancipation Proclamation was issued by President Abraham Lincoln 
on January 1st, 1863. 1863 is the answer. The proclamation changed the legal status of more than three and a half million enslaved African Americans, but only those in the secessionist Confederate states changed their status from enslaved to free. In addition, the proclamation allowed for former enslaved men to be received into the armed service of the United States. Our guest on this episode of the Historian's Podcast, Scott Shane, author of Flee North. He was a reporter for 15 years at the New York Times, twice a member of teams which won Pulitzer Prizes. Before that, Scott Shane uh, worked at the Baltimore Sun. He's taught reporting at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. This has been the Historian's Podcast. The podcast is produced by Dave Green, and I'm Bob Cudmore.